Scripture reading this afternoon comes from Psalm 102. Psalm 102. Our scripture readings are in connection with Lord's Day 8, our catechism reading, which deals with the doctrine of the Trinity. It probably won't be immediately obvious why uh, we're reading Psalm 102, but that comes in connection with Hebrews 1. So just hold that in your, in your minds and it will all be clear eventually. Psalm 102. We'll read verses 18 through 28. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that He looked down from His holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem His praise, when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So far from Psalm 102, let's also turn now to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 14. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. 
They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So far from Hebrews chapter 1. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing from that psalm. Psalm 102, stanzas 10 and 11. Every Sunday in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of Christian doctrine. And we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 8. That's on page 524 of your books of praise. Lord's Day 8, and it uh, is referring back to the Apostles' Creed, which was mentioned in the last Lord's Day, the Articles of the Apostles' Creed. And so question 24 asks, how are these articles divided? Into three parts. The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second, about God the Son and our redemption. The third, about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed Himself in His Word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, When we started our study of the Catechism and of the doctrines of the Christian faith all the way back in in Lord's Day 1, several months ago now, uh, one of the things I emphasized then is that the whole point of this study, indeed the whole point of an afternoon worship service, besides simply the opportunity to worship God, the reason we go through the Catechism and study these doctrines is to give us an opportunity to grow in the knowledge of God and of our faith so as to be able to live our lives more fully out of that faith. So we we study the catechism, we study the basics of the Christian faith to know what we believe better, to know it more clearly, so that we may live out of it more completely, more fully, and, and to live more confidently in what we know from the gospel. Uh, so that's, that's our purpose as we're doing this study. Uh, we want to be able to grow in the knowledge of God so, be, so as to be able to live our lives more fully and more confidently in the joy of the gospel. Now I hope you can understand as we think about that, uh, that should be a desire that exists in the hearts of every one of us Christians. We want to know God better. We want to understand the gospel more clearly. We want to see its implications more fully so that we can live out of it uh, more completely. Uh, It's there, in fact, in every one of Paul's letters. We saw it even uh, this morning in Colossians again, uh, where almost every one of his letters, he opens with a prayer that essentially boils down to a prayer that that church would grow in the knowledge of God so as to be able to live in Christian wisdom. Uh, How do you do that? How do you grow in maturity 
as Christians, we study the Word of God. You study uh, the doctrines of, of Scripture. Uh, so if that's Paul's prayer for every church, so that should be our prayer for ourselves, both each of us individually, as well as us as a church. We want to be a church where, where there's good, strong knowledge of, of the gospel. Uh, so that's why we have this, this afternoon service, that we may work through the teachings of Scripture to grow and deepen in our knowledge uh, of what Scripture teaches us. That's our path to Christian maturity. Uh, with that being said, probably the most foundational doctrine in the whole of the Christian faith is the doctrine of the Trinity. That's our, our starting point. It's our uh, most central uh, piece of, of doctrine. That's what the early church recognized very quickly in the first centuries. And that's why all of the creeds and confessions that we have are centered on this doctrine. The doctrine of the Trinity provides the outline for everything else that we believe. It's right at the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, without the doctrine of the Trinity, you lose Christianity itself. You, you end up with a different religion without the Trinity. Uh, you can't speak, for example, of, of God the Son being sent by God the Father to die for humanity or the Holy Spirit being poured out into our hearts. You can't have those uh, doctrines which are central to our faith without the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, so a clear and solid understanding of this doctrine is essential to a, to a strong and mature Christian faith. I'll say that again because it might be disconcerting. A clear, a clear and solid understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity is essential to a mature Christian faith. Now, the reason that might be uh, disconcerting or troubling to hear is because many of us, as we think about it, we stop and we wonder, do I have a clear understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity? It's not an easy doctrine to, to wrap our minds around. Uh, when we're confronted by Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Muslims or, or any other uh, groups that, that reject this doctrine, many of us will feel very quickly uncomfortable, insecure even, about do I, do I have a strong understanding of, of what this, this doctrine means and why we believe it? Well, brothers and sisters, it shouldn't be, it, that should not be so. It should not be that we are insecure about a doctrine that is so central to our faith. There is actually no reason why we should be insecure about this one. Uh, yes, yes, there is a mystery in this doctrine that none of us will fully comprehend, for sure. That's, it's the doctrine of the very being of God. Of course, we will not wrap our minds around it. However, the basic assertions of this doctrine that set the Christian faith apart from any other faith, the basic assertions are actually quite simple quite straightforward to understand. And the places where those assertions are grounded in Scripture are actually very straightforward and easy to prove. Uh, this, this, in that regard, is not a difficult doctrine. Uh, so that's the, the case I want to make this afternoon, and I want to show that from Scripture. This is a doctrine that, in its assertions, is easy enough to understand and is easy enough also to prove from Scripture. 
Uh, so I want to undertake in this sermon a basic biblical defense of the doctrine of the Trinity. I'll start by simply defining our terms, making sure we know what we mean, what we're talking about when we speak of the Trinity. And then what we'll do is we'll ground it in Scripture. And then once we've done that, I want to take a moment also to think about why this matters so much for, uh, for our faith. So we're going to look at what it means, where we find it in Scripture, why it matters so much for our faith. Uh, so, beginning then with, with what it means, probably the most common misunderstanding of the doctrine of the Trinity is this idea that, that God is one and three in the same sense. That is not a doctrine that we hold. Uh, it's the sort of one plus one plus one equals one concept that, that sometimes the Trinity is, is represented that way. And that God is both one and three in the same sense. That's not what we believe. That's not what the church confesses. What we confess as a church is that God is one. There is one God. He is one being within whom are three persons. Being and person. And that distinction is important. God is one with respect to being and three, with respect to persons. Uh, now, that certainly is a unique statement, but it's not an illogical statement. It's unique because it, it's different than our human experience where there's one being to one person. I am one human being, and I am one person, and so are you. We have a one-to-one correlation. Uh, with God, we find there is one being and three Persons. That's a unique statement. It's not an illogical statement. So the doctrine of the Trinity is often misconstrued as something that is illogical. It's not. It's unique, but it's not illogical. Uh, now, when we speak of, of being and personhood, I want to qualify this by saying we are using human language that will find its limitations as we seek to, to describe God. Uh, we will not be able to use any language that perfectly describes God because God surpasses our, our understanding. Um, nonetheless, these terms do mean something. When we speak of being, on the one hand, so there's one being, we are talking about existence. Now, here, here's where we reach our limitations. God exists in a different, in a different sense than we exist. Our existence depends upon God. Uh, without God, you and I cease to exist. God's existence stands outside of us. It's a different level, different plane of, of existence. Our existence is limited in time and space. I, I exist here and I exist now. I do not exist in a different time in a different place. Uh, and yet God's existence is outside of time and space. Uh, God exists everywhere always. Uh, he is as eternally present in the past as He is in the future. He is always there. Uh, so God is not limited in his, in his existence. Yet we can still speak of, intelligibly, we can still speak of God's existence. He does exist. Uh, that, that's not an impossible concept to understand. Um, likewise with personhood, uh, it, that, the word person will carry some human baggage that reaches, 
excuse me, reaches its limitations in trying to describe God. Uh, when we speak of persons, we very quickly think of, of beings, that, that one-to-one correlation. That will not apply to God. So there, there are limitations. And yet we can still say, we can still speak of three persons. Uh, a person is one who loves or one who hates. It's one who desires. It's one who has a, a will. Uh, these are things that only apply to persons, and we're saying there are three persons, distinct persons within the Trinity in that regard. So one being and three persons. That's the simple assertion of the Trinity. Is it unique? Absolutely. Is it impossible to understand? No, it's not. One being and three, three persons. Uh, the Athanasian Creed, which was written in the uh, 200s, uh, and has been received by the church since ancient times. It's one of our creeds as well. Uh, we don't read it that often, uh, but it's there. Uh, and it asserts the same, the same basic elements. It says, in the first place, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity without confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. That's the being, another word for, for being. Uh, so what it's saying is there. Uh, we're not going to say there are three gods, that would be wrong, nor can we say that they're all one person. We will not confuse the persons nor, uh, nor divide the substance. Uh, it goes on to say the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods but one God. Is that unique? Yes. Is it illogical? No. Uh, and it teaches also that the relationships between the persons, persons have relationships, the relationships are not all symmetrical. Uh, so it, it emphasizes the Father is not begotten like the Son is, nor proceeding like the Spirit is. The Father just is. The Son, on the other hand, is begotten. He has a, an origin. There's an origin relationship between the Son and, and the Father. The Spirit, likewise, proceeds. Uh, and yet, at the same time, there is no difference in greatness nor difference in, in majesty or glory between these three persons. So there it is. There's our, our basic uh, assertions of the doctrine of the Trinity. One God, three persons, with, within which are, are various relationships. It's not uh, impossible to comprehend. Now, where do we find that in Scripture? That's... That's where the rubber hits the road. Uh, having, having stated our definition, we now want to be able to ground that in, in Scripture. Where does Scripture teach all this language of, of one God, three persons? And many will say, uh, you don't find the, doc, the, the word Trinity anywhere in Scripture. So is it really a scriptural doctrine? That's true. You don't find the word Trinity anywhere in Scripture. And, and that fact, understandably, makes many people uncomfortable with the doctrine. And yet, just because the word isn't there, doesn't mean that the doctrine isn't there. Uh, the word Trinity is simply an attempt to put together the different things that Scripture teaches us about God without violating any one of them. It's simply saying, here's what Scripture says about God, and here's what Scripture says, and here's what Scripture says, and we're going to put it together, and we're not going to deny any one of these pieces. Um, and this, too, is not that difficult to prove. Uh, 
You can break the data down into three very, very simple points. Um, And if you have all three points, you have the doctrine of the Trinity. Number one, there's one God. It's fairly easy to prove uh, from Scripture. There's one God. Number two, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. It's relatively easy to prove, and we'll do that. And number three, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit are different persons not different gods, nor different manifestations or, or dimensions of the one God, but different persons with whom, within whom there are relationships. So one God, Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God, and each are unique persons. Three simple data points that are relatively easy to prove from Scripture. So first of all, Scripture teaches that God is one. That's one of the clearest doctrines of Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is true Old Testament. It's true New Testament. God does not change. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, The point is made all over Scripture. There is one God. We worship God. One God and Him alone. It's a very easy point uh, to to show from Scripture. Uh, But this sets us apart from many other religions. Hinduism, for example, has has many millions of gods. Uh, Mormonism has even even more gods. Many people often think that Mormonism is, is really just a different kind of Christianity and basically the same. Mormonism has an infinite number of gods. Uh, Mormons believe that God himself was once a man with his own God. And then he, uh, after perfect obedience, he became a God. And now one day we will also become gods. It's a very different religion. Uh, the Bible teaches clearly that God is one. That's our first, most basic biblical foundation. Number two, we find at the same time in Scripture that the Lord Jesus is called God and the Holy Spirit is called God, and that these are not just different manifestations of God, as in, you know, sometimes God appears in the form of the Father, sometimes He appears in the form of the Son. No, uh, they are unique persons. That's our our third principle. Uh, So, for example, uh, to to see the, the distinction in persons, Jesus prays to the Father. You don't have a, a, one manifestation praying to another. Uh, so the analogy is sometimes used. I'm a husband, I'm a father, and uh, I'm a member in the church. Uh, three different manifestations. But husband me doesn't pray to father me. Doesn't even have a relationship with father me, nor with church member me. Uh, that Persons have relationships. Dynamics, facets, don't. Uh, so the Father, Son, and Spirit are not just different sides of God, they're unique persons. Uh, So Jesus prays to the Father. Jesus was sent by the Father. Something that only happens between two persons. He obeys the Father. He's called the the Son of the Father. Distinct persons. Uh, So He's not the Father Himself, and yet Jesus is clearly God. He's worshipped in several places in Scripture. And he accepts that worship, which would be blasphemy for anyone but God to do. 
Uh, at his baptism, God says, the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, the Son of God. Uh, or John 20, verse 28. Thomas, the, the, the apostle or disciple Thomas, uh, recognizes the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. And he falls down and says, My Lord and my God. He's God. Jesus is God. Uh, in several places, the Apostle Paul calls him God. Uh, Titus 2, verse 13. We wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Uh, in Hebrews 1, we, we read that earlier, uh, Christ is called the radiance of the glory of God. Only God radiates his own glory. Uh, in many places, Jesus calls himself the Son of God, a divine title already in itself. Um, in John 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Uh, in John 17, the Lord Jesus prays to the Father and he speaks of the glory we had together from eternity. Only God has glory with God from eternity. These are things that can only ever be said of God. And in fact, the Lord Jesus was crucified precisely for this reason, for making himself out to be God. Uh, we, we find plenty of Old Testament texts as well that, that show that the Messiah was God, such that the Jews themselves, in the days of Jesus, expected the Messiah to be a divine figure. Uh, however they understood that, I don't think they themselves knew. But they understood the Messiah was a divine figure. Uh, Isaiah 6, uh, To us a child is born, a son is given, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's a divine name given to the Messiah. Now, the, the sect that, that most famously denies the doctrine of the Trinity, um, and specifically the divinity of Jesus, is the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, you can hear that already in the name. They, they regard themselves as, as the witnesses of Jehovah God over against what they perceive to be the heresy of, of those who call Jesus God. Uh, now, many of us have, have had encounters with Jehovah's Witnesses, and you'll, you'll very quickly run into the, the first challenge, which is that they use their own Bible, and it has, it's their own translation, but it's more than a translation because it reinterprets all of the key texts. So you go to John 1, you're like, I, I know I can prove it from John 1, and oh, they've got a different John 1. Uh, that, that's not fair. You can't do that. Uh, and if you try and debate them then on these, on these key texts, you get nowhere because they have their own Bible. Uh, so if you read John 20, verse 28, that's where Thomas says, My Lord and my God. You think I got them there. Uh, you go to that, and the way their translation reads it is, Thomas looks at Jesus and says, My Lord. And then he looks up at heaven and says, My God, as an expression of surprise. That's not fair. That's not what Jesus, or that's not what Thomas Meant. It makes you wonder why the Lord Jesus didn't rebuke Thomas for, for taking God's name in vain in, in that moment. And it doesn't explain why Thomas worshipped uh, God. But here's the thing. The, these, all of these proof texts, these key texts, even if they reinterpret every one of them, uh, they're only the tip of the iceberg. 
you read the New Testament, it is written from the perspective that Jesus is God. And you're not going to escape it even by, by reinterpreting your key, uh, what you perceive to be the key text. Uh, so instead of debating the proof text, uh, a better way to get around this is, is to consider the many, many texts in the New Testament where Old Testament scriptures concerning God are quoted about Jesus. That's what we read together in Psalm 102. So now you'll, you'll finally understand why we, uh, why we read that. Uh, psalm 102 is a psalm written to God. Um, very clearly, uh, verse 12, You, O Lord, that's in all caps, uh, the underlying Hebrew being Yahweh or Jehovah. As you can point this out to a Jehovah's Witness, who is this written to? It's written to Jehovah. Uh, you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered through all generations. Uh, and then verse 25, it continues. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You change them like a robe. They pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And you can stop and ask, can that be said of anyone but God? And it cannot. Your years have no end. This is language that only can be said of God, not to mention the fact that it's specifically addressed to Jehovah. Um, And and any Jehovah's Witness will acknowledge this in in Psalm 102. Uh, That's obvious. Uh, And and also that the things said there could only be said of of God. Then you turn forward to Hebrews 1 where the author applies this very same text to Jesus. He says, of the Son, he says, you, O Lord, or excuse me, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. You are the same. Your years have no end. This is applied to the Lord Jesus. Um, The whole of the Old Testament is written from this perspective that Jesus is God. So the, the, the Old Testament language written to God is applied to to the Lord Jesus. Clearly, the author of Hebrews believed that Jesus is Jehovah God. And you will find dozens, dozens of similar texts as you read your New Testament with your eyes open to this. You see it all over. Oh, they're quoting Scripture applied to God, and they're applying it, reading it, as if it's written to the Lord Jesus. Now, there are many other examples. Philippians 2, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Quoting there, almost verbatim, from Isaiah 45, written to Jehovah God. Or John 12, where Jesus says that, uh, that the prophet Isaiah saw my glory and spoke of me. And there he's clearly referring in the context to, to, to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the glory of Jehovah God as he stands in God's temple and the glory of God fills, uh, fills the temple. Uh, so this conviction that Jesus is God is not only from a few scattered proof texts, it's from the whole of the New Testament that clearly states from beginning to end and not only states but assumes throughout that Jesus is Jehovah Yahweh God. Uh, So Jesus is God, and yet he is also distinct.
from the Father. This too, very easy to see. Not only does he pray to the Father, but he was sent by the Father, and, and so on and so forth. And you'll see the same things with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent by, uh, by the Father. Uh, he, he, he obeys the Father. Uh, he isn't, therefore, the Father, nor is he the Son. He is a unique person. Uh, he's called He in Scripture, not It. Uh, the Spirit is not as, as some, uh, some, some uh, sects like Jehovah's Witness will say, a power, a force. No, a force you would call it. Uh, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit He. He can be grieved. Uh, in Acts 8, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Uh, he can be lied to. Um, and, and in Acts 8, we have... Uh, Ananias and Sapphira that lie to the Spirit, and, and Peter points it out. He says, you've, you've lied to the Spirit, and so you've lied to God. He is God, and yet he is a distinct person. And there are many, many more texts that one might consider. Again, you can go back to the Old Testament and see this, this dynamic there as well. Uh, already in Genesis 1, you've God speaking in the plural. Uh, let us Make man in our image. You have a plurality there. Uh, in the Psalms, in many other places, you discover the, the Messiah, uh, the Messiah figure that, that Israel was to wait for, the Savior who's promised, is none other than God himself, though he is also a human being. Uh, again, Isaiah 9, the child to be born is called Mighty God. Uh, Psalm 45 is one of the most interesting uh, examples. In, in Psalm 45, you have the Messiah who appears to be God, uh, who is in fact addressed as God, but is also sent by God and blessed by God. So you have God sending God and God blessing God. The Messiah is a divine figure. That's the other text that, uh, th- that Hebrews 1 quotes in support of this doctrine. So Bring it back down to the the distinct pieces here then. You have God the Father, Christ His Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of them clearly God, and yet all of them clearly distinct persons. Uh, They are all presented as God, though they are unique persons. Uh, You see this the most clearly, perhaps, in Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working visibly and distinctly together. So, God the Father speaks from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son. And the Holy Spirit descends from heaven upon Jesus. You have the three persons, each operating distinctly as persons, and yet they are together God. And if, you've, if, uh, if there's any doubt left, you also have the many texts in the New Testament that speak of the Father, Son, and Spirit all, all together. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus commands his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, notice one, one name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One name, three persons. Or 2 Corinthians 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You have all three together. So here's a question. 
What do we do with that biblical evidence? What do we do when we have, once we've compiled all that, what now will we, we do? We have two options. Either, number one, we can find a way to make all these texts fit together, whether they want to or not, in a way that satisfies our human understanding. This is what every, every non-Christian sect will do. It'll take these texts and it'll reinterpret them or it'll uh, diminish the, the, the significance of some while elevating the significance of others uh, and find a way to force them together in a way that ultimately either denies the oneness of God or the uniqueness of the persons or the divinity of either the Son or the Spirit. You have texts or, or you have uh, sects that will do that. Uh, so some will say that the Father and Son are just different modes of existence of God, different dynamics, different facets of, of God, but not distinct persons. And to make that argument, you must diminish, downplay the fact that the one person sends another, that the one person prays to another, that the two love one another. Father and Son enjoy a deep, eternal love. You can only say that about persons. Or you'll have other, other groups that will, will either say that, yes, they are distinct persons, but this, the Son is not God. And then you must diminish, uh, ignore the texts that show that He is. So that's one thing we could do with the biblical evidence. We can grab it all, force it together into a mold that, that we find intellectually satisfying. We say, okay, now I get God. Now God makes sense to me. That's one way we can do it. Or we can take the Word of God for what it is, the Word of God, and accept that God is beyond our understanding. And say, this is what God tells us about who He is. I don't understand it, but that's what God tells me. And that's what the doctrine of the Trinity does. It's not a doctrine that seeks to intellectualize the Trinity, that seeks to explain or rationalize the Trinity. It's a doctrine that says, here's what God tells us, and guess what? God is beyond our understanding. And I would submit to you that that ought not to be a controversial point, that God is beyond our understanding. In fact, I'd be more suspicious if you were to present to me a God that actually fits in your understanding, a God that you can wrap your mind around. That should make you suspicious. That should make you say, I think you're inventing that God. A God who's beyond our understanding ought not to come as any surprise to us. So here's the big idea then. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is very often mischaracterized, particularly by these uh, different sects, as an invention of the church. As if it's a human construction, a human attempt to rationalize God, it is in fact precisely the opposite. It's a resistance to every human attempt to try and force God into our mold. And it's an acceptance of the fact, here's what the Word of God tells us God is like, and He's beyond our understanding. All we know is there's one God and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of whom are God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. All, uh, how, how that works, we don't know. And we're not surprised that we don't know. We kind of expected that we wouldn't know how, how God works in his inner being. That shouldn't surprise us. Uh, but, but we're not going to deny it, 
nor are we going to explain the text away to try and come up with a God that we find satisfying. That's not the way it works. Uh, So when we are confronted in Scripture with this God, with a God who's beyond our ability to comprehend, we should resist with every bone in our body the very deep impulse that we do feel, the impulse uh, to sacrifice some parts of Scripture at the expense of others uh, in order to, to, to fit him into a logical box. We shouldn't do it. That's, that's the human mind saying, I will make God in my image instead of God has made me in his. Instead, we should simply confess, this is what scripture teaches us. And no, we don't understand him. We didn't expect to, uh, but that's what God tells us. With that being said, then, I want to take a moment just to apply this to our own faith, our own life. Uh, how does this doctrine uh, mature us in, in our faith. The reality is the Christian faith is fundamentally and inextricably Trinitarian. It's a Trinitarian faith. There's no other way to be a Christian than to be a Trinitarian. Uh, you can take away all the proof texts, all the arguments, and at the end of the day, you still have God the Father sending God the Son to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve to die, to be raised from the grave by the power of the Father and the Spirit, and then the Spirit being poured out into the hearts and lives of God's people. You still have the Trinity at the end of the day. Without the Trinity, you no longer have the Gospel. You no longer have Christianity, even though we can't wrap our minds around the inner being of God, we are only creatures, yet our faith rests on this most essential foundation. Without it, we have nothing, or rather, we have, we have a different religion altogether. So what shall we say? If Jesus is not God, as some will say, uh, then what are we saved by? Are we saved by man and not by God? What then of the the song that the angels sing? Salvation belongs to man? No, salvation belongs to God alone. Probably the oldest song in the book. From the beginning to the end, the angels sing, salvation belongs to God. If it isn't God who saves us, we are most certainly lost. Salvation will not come from us. And so it's not surprising then that every religion, every sect that denies the doctrine of the Trinity, whether it's Islam, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses, whether it's it's Mormonism, uh, ends up, once they've rejected the doctrine of the Trinity, they end up presenting, when you break it down, a very different gospel. It is salvation by man one way or another. In the end, if we're not saved by the all-sufficient death of Christ, the Son of God, who alone could save us, we will be saved one way or another by our own works. And that is an invention of human minds. And so we, uh, we, we would end up right back to one of the most fundamental lies that we've done our best over the last several months to discard. This lie that, that either our sins are not so bad, that either God's justice is not so perfect nor so necessary, that perhaps our corruption is not so severe, uh, that perhaps we can earn our own righteousness somehow before God, and every one of these sects ultimately comes down to that. It is a different gospel, and God warns us over and over, don't go down that road. 
Salvation is from God alone. So instead, let us remain committed as Trinitarian Christians to coming before the living God as He reveals Himself, as He calls us to His grace, as He offers that grace in His divine Son, Jesus Christ. Yes, He's beyond our understanding. We didn't really expect any different. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But even though we cannot understand Him or comprehend Him, we can most certainly know Him. We can know God, though we cannot wrap our minds around Him. Just as a small child uh, cannot possibly understand all the inner workings of his father's uh, thoughts, yet he can certainly still know his father, can't he? Even a child can know his father, even if he can't understand him. So it is with us and God. We cannot wrap our minds around Him, but we can certainly know our Heavenly Father. And that's Christ's promise to us. If we know Christ the Son, we know God the Father. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you've seen me, or excuse me, if you've known me, you've known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So, brothers and sisters, even though we haven't fully known God, and perhaps we never will, Uh, We never will wrap our minds around God. Though we haven't yet fully known Him, we already do. Or excuse me, though we haven't fully understood Him, we do already know Him. And we already have that bond of love. The same love, Jesus says in John 17. The same love that the Father had with the Son for eternity. That love is given to us who belong to Him. The love of God is given to us and communicated to us and brought into us through the Holy Spirit of God. That transforms us and gives us a deep delight and a desire more and more to know our God. Amen. Let's respond by singing together from hymn 3.